May God add his blessings to the reading of the scriptures this morning. And may the words from my mouth be what we need to hear today. Jesus very often says some shocking things as we read the New Testament and the story of his life. No wonder the religious leaders in his day didn't like him. He wouldn't be too popular here in our community if he were here today either, at least not with uh, uh, better people in town. He seemed to prefer to associate with the lowlifes, if, if you will, the rejects, the worst of society. And he once said, a man went up to pray, a Pharisee, of course, that's the great religious, the religious person, and a tax collector. Now the audience was supposed to hiss and boo when he said tax collector, because tax collectors were not very popular in those days, just like the IRS is not too popular with us today. But most of the women and men who work for the IRS, I'm sure, today are honorable, good people. That was not true with tax collectors in Jesus' day. They were, some of them were, many of them were worse than scoundrels. They worked with the enemy, the government of Rome. They worked on commission. And the more they could gouge out of the people that they were supposed to be serving, the more they could pocket for themselves. And the Pharisees, you know, we talk about them a lot, and they get a lot of bad press in the Bible, but there were some good, fine people in those days who were Pharisees. But the tax collector, that's another story. Yet, when Jesus tells this story, the tax collector, the guy nobody likes, seems to be the hero. He starts out with the prayer that the Pharisee prays. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, like robbers or evildoers or adulterers or any of those, or even like this tax collector. I'm glad I'm not like him. Thank you. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all that I have. At first glance, this doesn't seem like a bad prayer, except when you put it in the tone I just did. The Pharisee wasn't like the riffraff of society, and that's good. Thank God for that. I'm thankful myself for the kind of values that have been instilled in me by people who have been good examples and have taught me. Aren't you? If you aren't, you ought to be. Most of us could honestly pray the Pharisee's prayer, maybe a little, maybe worded a little differently. But listen to the prayer of the tax collector. The tax collector stood at a distance. He could not even look up to heaven but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Can't you almost see him standing there a distance from the crowd, praying this prayer? No illusions, 
No pretending. He knows what he is. And he knows what he's done. He is so ashamed that he can't even look toward heaven, it says. His prayer is an honest prayer. He says, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said that the tax collector went back to his home that day justified, but the Pharisee did not. Why? The answer is found, I think, in the crowd that Jesus was talking to. Verse 9, I think, is the key. Listen to this description of the crowd. This is the crowd that Jesus was speaking to that day when he said this. It says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Jesus decided the lesson he wanted to teach that day based on the people he was speaking to, the audience he was speaking to. If he had been speaking to a group of tax collectors, maybe the Pharisee would have been the hero. But he was telling this parable to a group of people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on others. That makes all the difference in the world. Still, there, were some, there are some important truths in this parable that apply to any audience, including us. Some truths about why Jesus, for lack of a better way to put it, why Jesus likes people who are honest about their mistakes, their sins. We'll call them sinners. Jesus likes when we admit we're sinners, first of all, because we know that we have room to grow. Notice again that description of the audience that day. Some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. These were people who thought they had already arrived, that they considered themselves to be part of the spiritual elite. Nobody likes people like that. People who are smug, condescending, self-important. Months after he lost the presidential race in 1984, former Vice President Walter Mondale was giving a talk about terrorism at the American Bar Association convention. Suddenly there was an explosion and security staff went into action and the audience, everyone there froze, didn't know what to do. But they quickly discovered that the noise that they had heard, the explosion, was from a TV camera light. Now, unfortunately, when that happened, there was a little bit of smoke, enough to set off the sprinkler system, and everybody in the room got drenched, including the former vice president. Mondale, soaking wet, looked around and said, well, once you're out of office, there's very little dignity in the world. That comment showed his sincere humility, and everybody likes a humble person. John Brody was once a quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers. He was asked why, back in those days, a quarterback held the ball for the kicker, for the place kicker or the... Uh, the, the punter. And he was asked why a superstar like him should have to hold the ball for field goals and for points after touchdowns. He said, well, if I didn't, the ball would fall over. <laughs> no false pride. 
no obnoxious pretense. Brody understood that it just needed to be done and it was his place to do it. There isn't much hope for people who think that they've already arrived. Why should I bother to stand in this pulpit every Sunday morning if you think that you already know everything you need to know about Jesus and about faith and about growing together as disciples, as a church family? What a waste of my time. What a waste of yours. Jesus came into the world to introduce people to a new reality. There was no need for him to waste his precious time with people who thought they already knew it all and didn't need to hear anymore. Jesus likes sinners, people who make mistakes and who admit it, first of all, because they know, we know, we still have plenty of room to grow. Jesus also likes when we admit we're sinners because we don't look down on others. makes it difficult to do that. Notice what verse 9 says again about the audience. Some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on others. That's what happens, isn't it? I ran across this quote this week. The trouble oftentimes with religious people is that they try to be more spiritual than God. And when that happens, we begin to look down on other people. There's an old story about a senior minister in a big metropolitan church who walked into the sanctuary one day, knelt down at the altar, and prayed out loud, Oh God, I am the worst of sinners. I am nothing. I am a worm. Over and over again, he repeated these degrading words. His associate pastor walked by and was very impressed by his humility. And so she knelt down beside him. And she also prayed, O Lord, I am the worst of sinners. I am nothing. I am a worm. While the two of them were praying this prayer out loud, the church custodian happened to walk by, and he overheard both of them. He too was impressed with their humility, and he went in, knelt down beside them, and repeated the same prayer. O Lord, I too am the worst of sinners. I am nothing. I am a worm. The associate pastor stopped praying. She elbowed the senior pastor, and she whispered, Look who thinks he's nothing like us. One of the main reasons that the medieval church put pride at the top of the list of the seven deadly sins is that pride causes us to look down on other people. This is a big temptation for people who think they are deeply spiritual and devout. In the book called Channels of Spiritual Power, the author says that one of the problems people have as they seek to follow Christ is that the closer they get to God, the more clearly they see the weaknesses of human nature. And the great temptation of one who is trying to be a good Christian is to be critical of those who do not share his or her Christian ideals. How to hate wrong yet feel love and tolerance for the one who does wrong is a problem that every Christian must face. The problem does not grow less, It grows greater 
as one's dedication to God increases. The Pharisee very likely was a good Christian in every way. But as soon as he looked down his nose at the tax collector, it was all for naught. Many years ago, there was a French play about a group of getting ready to enter the pearly gates. There was a mob of them. Some had been quite righteous. Others had not. Some of those who had been morally upright were really outraged when they saw some who were being allowed into heaven. And these moral misfits, they thought, didn't belong there. It was not fair. It was unjust. As the wait to go into heaven grew longer, the anxiety and the anger of all these righteous members of the mob grew until finally some of them began to curse those who they felt should not be allowed into heaven. When they did that, they lost their place. They had failed the most important test of all, the test of compassion. Jesus likes sinners who admit it because they don't look down on other people. And finally, Jesus likes when we admit that we're sinners, that we make mistakes, because we know then that we must depend upon God. Notice in verse 9, some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. These self-righteous people didn't trust God. They trusted in themselves and their good works. We still do that sometimes. In the very first of his 95 theses, Martin Luther reminded us that we are to rely on God. That was his first of the 95, that we are to rely on God, not our own righteousness, for our salvation. How quickly we seem to forget. Of course, Luther himself didn't do much better. 20 years after he had nailed these theses to the church door at Wittenberg, he admitted that he still felt the old dirt clinging to him of wanting to deal with God in such a way that he could not contribute that he could contribute something to his own salvation. He still could not get it into his head that he was saved through sheer grace and that what he was needed was a complete surrender of himself to that grace. And I think very often we find ourselves guilty of this. We think that the the things that we do are somehow going to, the good deeds that we do are somehow going to help get us to heaven. No. Getting to heaven has already been taken care of when we've exercised our faith in God. The good works that we do are all part of bringing the kingdom of heaven to this earth and doing our part to make that happen. The Pharisee couldn't see that all of his righteousness, quote-unquote, was, as the scriptures say, like filthy rags. We can never be righteous enough to deserve God's love. That love is freely given to us. Aren't you glad? When we know we're sinners, when we know we make mistakes, then we know that we must depend on God. I lied. That wasn't the last one. One more. Jesus likes sinners because you know what? There's no one else to like. We're all sinners. Not one of you. Raise your hand if you can brag about your righteousness. Raise your hand. 
Look at that. I don't see one hand. We have nothing. We have no righteousness without Jesus. There was an amusing story about a man in Knoxville, Tennessee, who tried to break into a convenience store. He slid down an air duct through the roof, and it happened that this air duct went into a vent that goes right down, that's right above the frying equipment in the store. And by the time he got through this duct, he was down in the store, all right, but he was covered with grease and powdered with this fire retardant chemical that dries out your skin and your throat and burns your eyes when it makes contact. And then, to make matters even worse, when he tried to leave the store, he discovered that he couldn't get through the dead bolted doors. They were locked with a key. You had to have a key even from the inside. And he couldn't get back up that vent. So when the owner of the store opened the doors the next morning, the man ran out. The owner recognized him underneath all that grease and powder and called the police. Not only was he caught, but he also had to be treated for the effects of all that powder all over him and the damage that it did. We comfort ourselves sometimes. I'm not covered with the grease and the grime of those other people. I've never committed adultery. I've never been caught shoplifting. Nobody in my family has ever been a prostitute or a drug addict. I've never touched any of that stuff. And we pride ourselves on these things. But at the same time, we ignore that subtle powder that's on us, that powder of pride and prejudice against those who have done those things. And we ignore people who are less fortunate than us. And for some reasons, various reasons, have done some of those things that we're so glad we didn't do. Well, we didn't do them because we weren't in their circumstances and in their situation sometimes. But none of us are righteous. Not one. And that's why we can take comfort in the fact that Jesus likes, no, he loves sinners. There's no one else to like. That's what we all are. So a Pharisee and a tax collector went up to pray. One was a thief and a traitor. The other was one of the best people in town, but both were sinners. The Pharisee thought that he had already arrived, so no further growth was needed. He looked down on people who were not as far along as he was. He depended on himself and his own good works rather than on the grace of God. A Pharisee and a tax collector. Both were sinners, but only one of them was aware of the fact. Fortunately, Jesus loves sinners. How do we know that? Because he died for sinners. He understands that we make mistakes, and he forgives us every time. And I'm so glad that he does. Aren't you? Amen.